Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pass gas. I'll see you there. Pass gas podcast. It's about cars. It's not about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that, so thank you. All right, now for the show. Right up top, this episode of Past Gas is not suitable for children. Um, if you're a kid, don't listen to this episode, or do, I'm not your dad. We hope, I can't, I, I hope I'm not your dad. The atmosphere in the studio was tense. It was clear that the host, defined by his felt suit and bald head, was at odds with the guest, an author sporting a flannel shirt and smoking a cigarette. The author's name was Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter was not used to the bright lights of a television studio. He was a journalist, after all. A professional whose medium was the page, his words written by a pen, hardly ever expressed live in front of a hundred-person studio audience. Hunter was promoting his book, Hell's Angels, The Strange and Terrible Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gang, in which he was critical of both the mass media and the Hell's Angels themselves. Suddenly, Hunter found himself pinned in between them on live television. Neither Hunter nor the audience knew it, but his book would be the defining account of life in the Hell's Angels for decades and launch his career into one of legend. So what made the book so special? How big of an impact did it have on the public's perception of outlaw motorcycle clubs? And most importantly, what did the Hell's Angels think? We'll be answering these questions and a lot more today on Past Gas. Damn, dude. Did you write that? Yeah. Yeah, it's I wrote that. Good, dude. Thanks, bro. I'm like <laughs> I'm like that bald head part really got me. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I could, he is bald. I could see the guy. I could see the guy. I don't even know what this guy looks like. I could see. He looks like Johnny Depp. Yeah. He looks like Johnny Depp. He, uh, Hunter Thompson's from Louisville. Yeah. That's yeah, well, where I'm that's where I'm fucking from. So I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, baby. Oh my goodness! Neither Dude, I Hunter... like my Brooklyn accent when I say yeah, that. Yeah, what's with that? <laughs> Louisville, fucking Kentucky, baby. Pizza, fucking yeah. Hell yeah. Bill, welcome to Past Gas. It's the show where we talk about cars, but this time we're talking about guns and also talking about motorcycles. <laughs> this is Hell's Angels Part 3, and it's Joe and Nolan and me, and we're gonna do 
Look and see, it's Passcast! Wow. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back. Yeah, hey everybody. Th- <laughs> thanks for listening. Thank you, James, for that new theme song very I'm cool on it. i'm working on it hard guys i'm uh really, welcome back nervous. to past gas everybody i am nolan sykes joined as always by my wonderful co-hosts some of my best friends i might say james pumphrey oh uh. and <laughs> and joe weber i love that dude i love when you say stuff like <laughs> yeah, that. that's great we're really finding joe's um uh voice on the show Really figuring out. I'm what... getting DMs on Instagram that say "fired up," so that's yes. pretty tight. Hell yeah, yes, that's dude. awesome. Keep sending Joe the DMs, uh, guys. I just want to thank you, dear listener, for uh, choosing to spend your time with us today. Uh, we know you have a lot of options, and it means a lot that you chose our show. So thank you very much, guys. How are you doing today? Not good. Not good. If I'm gonna be honest, which I, I shoot from the hip, I'm always trying to be honest. Yeah. Not doing good. I. I had a video go up on YouTube today. It's not doing good. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's always it. It shouldn't, but it always affects my outlook for the day. Um, yeah, either good or bad, depending on the performance, obviously. Right, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm grateful that I get to hang out with you guys for the next hour or so. Grateful for that. Uh, I'm gonna put. Hell yeah. I'm gonna put all that depression, disappointment behind me. I'm gonna. I'm looking forward to talking about the Hell's Angels with you boys. I'm glad that I'm looking at your beautiful faces on Zoom. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to riffing, joking, <laughs> midnight smoking with you, with you, bu- you bucket of bros. <laughs> <laughs> We're like a little bucket of coronitas. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, just like the seven ounce beers, the cutest beers. <laughs> Uh, another cute one is uh, Azulitas. Oh, yeah. That's not a beer that you buy intentionally. It's usually <laughs> yeah. like, whoa, why is this 12-pack so much cheaper than the rest of them? And then you get home and you're like, like oh, Aw. the bottles are this big. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beer for kids. Cause, yeah. Because you, <laughs> you shouldn't give your kid a whole beer. <laughs> get him started on that outlaw lifestyle early that's what we always mm-hmm. say here on past gas uh as we mentioned today we are discussing the impact of hunter s thompson's book uh hell's angels the strange and terrible saga and get an inside look at the club through the through his eyes in the mid 1960s uh gentlemen are you ready yeah hunter s thompson yeah. killed himself yes he did uh at age <laughs> At age 67. Build yeah. up all that momentum and then just bring it down again. It's like, yeah. I'm going to probably kill myself because my YouTube video isn't doing well today. Wow. Oh okay. God. Really? Um... So, if you're listening to this, go watch it. <laughs> go watch it. It's too late, man. The algorithm has buried it by now. No, no we can get a huge it's bump. dead in the water. We can get a huge bump from this. Um, yeah. Go watch the D list. Uh, you're right, though, James. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson did kill himself uh he had a very very interesting life which um look i gotta be honest this is the only hunter s thompson book that i've ever read and mm-hmm. i'm already thinking about buying some yellow sunglasses and a boonie yes. hat and several firearms uh because yeah. he's so cool he's a very influential dude yeah he's right. yeah, I, he's I, easy I, to like it like admire like i don't think i would actually want to live that lifestyle but it feels like 
like Joe had to cancel his bachelor party and that was a huge bummer. But I feel like bachelor part, I was looking forward to it because like a bachelor party, you get to kind of live like Hunter S. Thompson for a weekend. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. That's true. You know? And I think, I think Hunter S. Thompson is at least for our generation is a different person. Like we, like my age group grew up watching fear and loathing. So we're like, Oh, we think of him as just, you know, this crazy gonzo journalist. Uh, it took until I read that book to figure out that he was like an auto journalist and motorcycle journalist. Yeah. He was and a that sports was guy. like how he started. And he was so cool. The more I researched him, I was like, Oh damn, this dude's so cool. And he just did what he wanted. Yeah. Like fear and loathing. The reason he was in Las Vegas was he was covering the mint, uh, the mint 400, 400. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to probably read that one next. Actually, I want to read uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. Uh, he has a lot of uh, very interesting stories. Man, uh, Richard Nixon was a real piece of shit, huh? Yeah, he was <laughs> the antithesis of everything that Hunter S. Thompson uh, liked about America. Oh, before we get started, Nolan, I have a, I bought you a present. Really? Yeah. I'm going to debut it on the show. Okay. Okay. Oh, right now. We- I bought this for you right before quarantine. And uh, I didn't get a chance to give it to you. I think it really sums up your personality really well. And I think you should put it on the Mustang or save it for the dart. Okay, let's see it. It's a license plate rim that says, I'm not speeding, I'm qualifying. Hell yeah. Oh, that's so sick. Pretty good, huh? That's perfect. Yes. Yeah. That's you, baby. (laughs) I love. Thank you, James. Thank you very much. I've always wanted one of those. Um, so I'm very excited. <laughs> it's just to let the cops know. Listen, bro. Yeah. I got a sense of humor. <laughs> That's what I'm about. <laughs> well, here we go. Let's get into it. California's reputation among the states in the mid-60s was similar to how it is seen today. The diverse nature of the state's densely populated areas like San Francisco and Los Angeles gave the state a relatively progressive aura, amplified by agreeable weather that made convertibles and motorcycles a common sight on the Golden State's highways. I think it's like a rite of passage for all European tourists to rent a yellow or red Mustang convertible when they come here. Oh, yeah, and just pack it full of their boys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Euro boys. <laughs> one, t- one time I was picking up like a boring rental car, like I think like a minivan for a donut shoot uh, at the Hertz at the airport. And it's like, just like, long shorts like k-swiss kind of guy uh and his girlfriend (laughs) were getting their yellow uh camaro convertible and like they were looking at me like you loser (laughs) like just like you fucking your life sucks loser we're getting a v6 camaro (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i was like all right guys (laughs) i love seeing um like tourists who come to Los Angeles, and they're like, let's check out Hollywood for a day. Like, not knowing that Hollywood is just, like, junkies peeing on the street. It's the worst. (laughs) Guys, if if any of you are listening and you want to come to L.A., do not go to Hollywood Boulevard. Like, the the Walk of Fame is my least favorite place in L.A. It's the Spider-Man is not that fat. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the real Spider-Man. If you come to L.A., the thing to see is the beach. But really, L.A. really isn't a very good tourist thing. Uh, Go somewhere else. Anyway, Anyway. what about the motorcycles? Yeah. So uh, (laughs) just below California's idyllic exterior, though, a less favorable reality was teeming underneath. 
20 years prior, during World War II, President Roosevelt passed Executive Order 9066, which forced anyone on the West Coast of Japanese ancestry to be held captive at isolated internment camps across America. Two of these camps were located in California. After the war, a lot of those who were unjustly imprisoned never returned to the state, and those who did never forgot. The minority struggle in California continued with the fight for farm workers' rights. Mexican immigrants who worked in the fields were not being paid fairly for their work, a trend which nonviolent protest leader and worker himself, Cesar Chavez, refused to let go uncontested. In Los Angeles, African Americans who had moved west from the south found that Southern California was not as welcoming as it led on, forcing them to cordon themselves into tight-knit communities like Watts. On top of all this, there were protests in college communities like Berkeley against the slowly escalating Vietnam conflict. California was facing strife in communities all over the state, and on the verge of lasting change brought on through peaceful protest and clashes with authority. For those in favor of keeping the status quo, however, it was a very nervous time. Have you guys ever seen that uh, Blood and Crip documentary made by that that's that z-town boy no i haven't joe <laughs> uh it's really good and they they talk about how like you know um minorities were kind of just like cordoned in these these neighborhoods and then like when those neighborhoods became popular they were like pushed out so like compton yep uh was actually a white neighborhood and then the, the like minorities were forced into it after that's still going on in la i know yeah we're, it's like moving east now. Yeah. Um, everything's gentrifying. Things are getting more expensive and people are being forced out of their ho- homes. Yeah. It's like I what's mean, going on in Boyle Heights right now. California definitely has like that, you know, liberal image, um, very progressive image. But, even, but as far back as, you know, the 50s and 60s, um, the reality is, is that like we, it is, that's not the case really. Listen, um, people in charge just suck like george carlin says it's all a big club and you're not in it so california was not all it was cracked up to be and then there were the hell's angels when we last met up with them four of their members were fighting a rape charge in monterey the alleged attackers had kidnapped two teenage girls and repeatedly assaulted them newspapers all over the state reported on the attack describing a sheriff who responded to a frantic call from one of the victim's dates. The sheriff arrived at the scene, a gathering of Hell's Angels at the dunes, and witnessed the two victims emerging from the darkness, one covered by a torn sweater. It was a terrifying image, a crime perpetrated by the worst people the state had to offer. The newspapers were saying what their readers wanted to hear. Something had to be done about these monsters. But, like we said in our last episode, the perps were set free. Despite the wide coverage and heightened public awareness of the case, the charges were dropped on insufficient evidence. The case. What about the sweater? Yeah, it seems like. That's evidence. Yeah. The case caught the attention of The Nation, a weekly magazine established by abolitionists back in 1865. The Nation wanted a story on the Hells Angels and offered the equivalent of $800 to the offer they chose to write it. His name was Hunter Stockton. Thompson. I didn't know that was his middle name. Yeah. That's a cool middle name. Stockton's a cool cool name. 
Now, we are aware that some of our younger listeners might not be conscious of the weight that that name carries, and that's fine. It's not your fault that your only exposure to the man is through a fear and loathing in Las Vegas poster in your older brother's bedroom. I remember seeing that in like at least three dorm rooms in my dorm back in the day. Oh, dude, it's one oh, of the yeah. most dormy posters. That, Who, it's, 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 it's the fear and loathing poster, Scarface, Scarface. Uh, the usual suspects. Usual suspects. Pulp <laughs> Have fiction. Have we done this bit before? I feel like we've talked about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pulp Snatch. fiction. Uh, the Einstein poster where he's going like this. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the Audrey Hepburn like, where she has the cigarette holder. Right. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then. Um, the like Bob- beers, different beers. Oh, in yeah. The world. Gotta have a beer pyramid in the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then Bob Marley where he's going like this. Hell yeah. <laughs> the smoke coming out. <laughs> I think I'm gonna, you know, yeah. We've gotten some comments about me not having enough stuff on that back wall. You need all those posters, all of them, dude. I'm gonna get them on eBay right after. We'll talk about it offline. <laughs> we'll talk about it offline. Yeah. So he's not just a poster. Hunter S. Thompson is regarded by many to be the father of what is called Gonzo journalism, and they're right to regard him as that because he made up the term. He made up the uh, term, but he wasn't exactly the first guy to do it. But that got it. that's neither here nor there. So Gonzo um, journalism is when the writer includes him or herself in the story and efforts to be objective aren't exactly strictly adhered to. So Hunter's style was deeply personal and has been imitated by way too many other people um, <laughs> who haven't really perfected it. I was going to get a Gonzo tattoo with the two thumbs, the oh, fist, God. you know? Gonzo fist. I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was also going to get, you guys know the band, the faint, the faint, yeah. mm-hmm. the, f- I was going to get a faint, the faint tattoo around my arm. And I'm so glad I didn't. Yeah. I um, was going to get, I was going to get, uh, Mark Hoppus has a tattoo of just two stripes around his arm. Yeah. And I was going to get that, but I decided <laughs> not to. And I'm really glad I didn't. Every guy who looks like they do yoga and has long hair and, oh. uh, and probably, you know, is probably great. A great lover has that tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, Damn. That's me to a T. That is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also, um, one of my, I think about this almost like once a month, probably. Um, as like dodged bullets, even though it really doesn't affect my life at all. Um, in my high school quote was almost a sublime lyric. Oh, man. Uh, oh, my God. But my friend talked me out of it. Uh, so it was a Lou Reed quote. I, I, my senior quote, I, it, I was trying to be very serious and deep. Mm-hmm. It was Radiohead from Idiotech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have seen too much. I haven't seen enough, that's, which is like very cringy right now. Yeah. Uh, mine was, but between, between thought and expression lies a lifetime, which I stand by. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Still how I live my life today, baby. Oh, yeah. Mine is uh, <laughs> way, way worse than either of yours. <laughs> <laughs> what was is it, it? Limp Biscuit? <laughs> no, uh, it's actually the scat part from uh, Corn's. Um... <laughs> <laughs> is it really? Boom! No. Back to boom! Back <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> I wish it was. What was it? Uh, a a, a Doctor Phil quote. What? Yeah. What? Uh, <laughs> what is Doctor Phil? Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil? <laughs> you loser. You loser. He's not even a doctor. You know that, right? Wait. <laughs> I couldn't think 
of a quote. And I was like trying to be like meta and funny. So my senior quote, in lieu of a clever quote, here's Dr. Phil. Quotes. No matter how flat you make a pancake, it's still going to have two sides. Unquote. Yes. Oh, unquote, comma. Yes. He really said that. That's my quote. I guess that. I mean, it's a little better that you were. Oh, no, it wasn't yeah. an earnest Dr. Phil. Yeah, quote. it's a, it's better that you're making fun of Dr. Phil. But it's still fucking awful. It is awful. Yes, it is bad. Um, so yeah, all of his book, like his books were bestsellers and his fame rose to such a level that two of his books were made into films in both of which he was played by Johnny Depp. What was the other one besides fear and loathing? Uh, the rum diaries. Correct. Oh yeah. Starring Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Oh, is that where they met? Big yikes. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, another fun James Hollywood story. I used to have Johnny Depp's (laughs) rug in my living room. Oh, hell yeah. I would still have that. That's sick. Because when he married Amber Heard, my old roommate Brandon was friends with her. And she was like, hey, your house feels like a vampire lives here. (laughs) 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 And like made him read like they like redecorated his house. And we had this huge like black rug in my living room. Whoa. Um, Black rug is a is a mood. Dude, black rug is a fucking Let's start a band called Black Rug. Oh, like, hell yeah. Just like heavy, like desert metal. like Yeah, sludge metal. Yeah, I love yeah, desert yeah. metal. Black yeah, I'm Rug. into that. So, he, yeah. So, Hunter S. Thompson was a big deal, but he wasn't a big deal yet in 1965 when he accepted the nation's offer to cover the Hells Angels. That's right. Hunter was born in the best city in the freaking world uh louisville kentucky in 1937 and showed writing talent from a very young age so he's from louisville and he's a great writer just like me uh but that doesn't mean that he was a nerd uh hunter rolled with a rowdy group of friends whose escapades escalated from cute hijinks like dumping pumpkins in front of hotels to vandalism (laughs) sick prank dude (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, did you? Who dumped all these pumpkins in front of my hotel? Happy Halloween, innkeeper! But that quickly escalated to vandalism and robbery. In his high school days, Hunter also developed a drinking habit, which, from what I can tell from his writing, was a theme that lasted his entire life. Yeah, every interview I ever watched this week, uh, he had a glass of something, probably whiskey, uh, in his in his hand. Did you see that interview with him at his Colorado ranch where he's just doing lines and he's drinking and he's like smoking a joint? You have to watch it. It's so I good. Did not and it's, mi- I show it's it's a little like insight into the chaos that was his life. Even though he was like chilling in the Colorado mountains at this ranch, he was like one hundred all the time just going crazy that's crazy after being caught for robbery uh a judge told hunter that he could choose between jail or enlisting in the military hunter chose the military he was stationed at eglin air force base in florida where he worked as a sports editor for the base's newspaper the command courier hunter's time in the military didn't last long though and he received a discharge in 1958 Hunter was now free to pursue his love for writing. Success didn't come easy. Hunter traveled around the country working freelance gigs at newspapers and magazines. You might think 
that an early discharge from the Air Force would have changed Hunter's wild days. And if you think that, I'm here to tell you that you're dead wrong, pal. Hunter <laughs> was still Hunter. This is Hunter S. Thompson. And like his time in the military, his antics meant he wasn't a permanent fixture at any company for very long. But his unique style that flew in the face of authority made him a favorite of the underground counterculture movement and, the, and a natural fit for the Hells Angels story. That's right. Hunter focused his article on the incident in Monterey and the Lynch report, uh, which followed that incident. Uh, we mentioned last episode that the 15-page Lynch report was an effort by the Californian government to assess the impact of clubs like the Hells Angels and how the law could deal with them. The Lynch report outlined their crimes and numbers and was released to the public. When the media attention from events like the Monterey case mixed with the findings of the report, the public's reaction was easy to predict. It was fear. But Hunter didn't see that fear as justified. Early in his nation story, uh, Thompson went after the veracity of facts within the report itself, starting with the number of bikers in California. Since he was located in San Francisco at the time, he thought he could do it by just hanging out with the angels himself, which he did for two weeks. Here's a quote from the story. The police count was 463 Hells Angels, 205 around L.A. and 233 in the San Francisco-Oakland area. I don't know about L.A., but the figures for the Bay Area are 30 or so in Oakland and exactly 11, with one facing expulsion in San Francisco. This disparity makes it hard to accept the other police statistics. That was not bad, Joe. Yeah, that was good. That was <laughs> pretty. That was good. I like it. Thanks. If the Hell's Angels population was wrong, then what else could be? The dubious package also shows convictions on 1,023 misdemeanor counts and 151 felonies, primarily vehicle theft, burglary, and assault. This is for all years and all alleged members. This figure would show that the average angel has two misdemeanors and 0.3 of a felony, which to the layperson would probably make sense. But since the number of angels in the state was so wrong, these figures probably weren't accurate either. Hunter then argues that with the amount of crime in a state as populous as, Ca as California, that removing the club from those numbers wouldn't impact the state in any way. Hunter infers that it's not the Angels' fault that the drug arrest for teenagers rose 101% between 1963 and 64, and that STDs have doubled in that same time in that same group. Hunter posits that the Hells Angels are just an easy group to blame because they are so brash in every other part of their lives. This is not to say that a group like the Hells Angels has no meaning. The generally bizarre flavor of their offenses and their insistence on it identifying themselves make good copy, but usually overwhelm in print at least the unnerving truth that they represent in colorful microcosm what is quietly and anonymously growing all around us every day of the week. That last sentence is why I started the episode talking about the growing civil unrest in California. The status quo is being threatened on both sides, on one with progress and on the other with savagery. People who just wanted to keep their head down and hope everything would go back to normal were scared because they didn't know how to make that happen. And instead of trying to understand what motivated the quote agitators, the press and the government were taking aim at the easy target, who admittedly were pretty easy to find on loud motorcycles. Swimsuit, check. Sunscreen, check. Phone charger, check. 
Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Then there was the question of the Monterey case, the spark that lit the hatred for bikers all over the state. Why were the charges dropped? Page one of the report, which Times editors apparently skipped, says that the Monterey case was dropped because... Further investigation raised questions as to whether forcible rape had been committed or if the identifications made by the victims were valid. Hunter relays the incident from an angel's perspective that was present at the Dune Party, who said that one of the girls was trying to smoke weed with an angel and the cops were called because her date didn't like that. To quote the angel, They said yeah, and then they walked off with some of the guys to the dunes. The girl was really hot to trot. The first four or five guys she was really dragging into her arms. But after that, she cooled off, too. By this time, though, one of their boyfriends had got scared and gone for the cops. And that's all it was. Now, obviously, a Hell's Angel isn't going to tell Hunter that one of his buddies sexually assaulted a young girl. So I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, The truth is even harder to find out on the count of the shoddy police work done after the fact. According to Hunter's story, the police dropped charges after one of the girls refused to testify and the other was submitted to a lie detector test and, quote, found to be wholly unreliable. They performed a lie detector test on the victim. <laughs> what? Not to. I mean, that's just that's just crazy to me yeah. um, and just kind of shows just the time back the time back then, you know, like. No, it's still going on, dude. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And I mean, not to mention that like lie detector tests are very unreliable as it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're actually. That's why you got to don't lose, really work. They're not you have really to a use thing. Truth serum. There's a really great podcast called uh, Citations Needed. They have an episode on lie detectors. I definitely suggest you guys check it out. It'll definitely change your opinion on uh, those machines. Hunter ends the nation's story with a quote from an angel which showed how the media and government attention probably backfired and laid the groundwork for what was to come for the club. Of course, I don't like to read all this bullshit because it brings the heat down on us. But since we got famous, we've had much more rich ass and sex-hungry women come looking for us that we never had before. Hell, these days... We have more action than we can even handle. I mean, my wiener hurts. All, <laughs> all these ladies keep coming around demanding all kinds of sex and stuff, and I'm just like, chill, baby. I just want to ride my hog, and my wiener damn hurts, babe. I got to wrap it in gauze. <laughs> I, hey, hold on. I'll get to you, make a single file line, but I got to ice my wiener down from all the doing it. You guys, this is off topic, but we were talking about ODB before. He used to f- so much that he would like get friction sores and then he would wrap his f- in gauze and put a condom over it. And then he kept having to do that more and more because it was like he wouldn't stop doing oh it on God. tour. Wow. And Ghostface was like, even Ghost, if Ghostface has to tell you to stop, like you've, <laughs> you're like <laughs> off the rails. <laughs> I, uh, 
I, I went and saw Ghostface at an in-store one time. And oh, yeah? somebody asked him a question about like, hey, like, is this was a while ago, like before Wu-Tang was like friendly, I guess. And uh, <laughs> like this guy was like, hey, do you, like, do you think Wu-Tang will, you know, you have any projects coming up or whatever? And uh, Ghostface just got really mad. And he was just like, Rizza's not my dad. Like, I don't need the Rizza. And, and it, just, <laughs> it was like really disappointing. It was like, oh, <laughs> that's weird. Okay. I get okay. Sorry, <laughs> it's like, uh, why are you taking questions? Of course, we're gonna ask about the Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> oh, sorry. Tell me more about Fish Scales. <laughs> Pretty Tony. It's a good album. Yeah. So yeah, if you set out to intimidate a group, and all they can think of, and all they can think about is how many chicks they can pull because of you, uh, you probably failed. Hunter's story was a huge hit, which is crazy to think about. When was the last time a magazine article was a huge hit? Uh, readers wanted more. If Hunter could stand to be around the club, he might as well tell us everything he can, right? A few journalists had secured interviews with the club, but Hunter actually hung out with them and made an effort to understand who they really were. What if he lived with them? What if he got a book deal with Random House Publishing and did just that? Uh, well, we'll see what happens because that's exactly what happened. Hunt. It's <laughs> an interesting way to introduce that. I know. Right? What My if, bad. Uh, uh, what if we did a podcast uh, and this was the third part on the Hell's Angels? And what if we uh, riffed a bunch, probably too much for an episode because, you know, James is in a mood. And uh, we also told the story of Hunter S. Thompson and the Hell's Angels. Well, you'll find out because that's what we're going to do. Uh, yeah, so Hunter would spend the next year living and riding with the Hells Angels, documenting their runs and giving the American public a firsthand account of life inside the club. People wanted the real Hells Angels, and Hunter was about to get it, coming close to death in the process. Midway through 1965, Hunter started his year-long journey with the club. He was introduced to the Angels by San Francisco police reporter and Hell's Angels Frisco Charter Vice President, Bernie Jarvis. Bernie Jarvis. Jarvis had, what is a police reporter? So like they do like, they report on crimes. Oh, so the, the a journalist was a co-founder, oh, was a vice president? Yeah, very weird, right? That's cool. Yeah. Jarvis had That's just- That's like super unusual. Yeah. Uh, the Hell's Angels hated media attention. Or they said they did. No, they like it. Uh, sounds like, and it's just very bizarre. And like he, he, this guy's in close contact with cops all the time. He's a very complicated figure in this story. That's cool. Yeah, Jarvis had just as interesting a life as Hunter, and that's probably why they became friends. While working at the Chronicle, Jarvis had a tendency to ditch work for flights of fancy, like sailing to Hawaii or the Caribbean. Jarvis was also a very capable fighter with an amateur boxing record of 56 wins, one loss, and one draw. The Angels were understandably suspicious of members of the press, but because Hunter was introduced to the club by Bernie Jarvis, that gave him at least some clout with the boys. Yeah, so like like you said, James, he would go on these expeditions and just like ditch work all the time, and they would fire him because of it. But because he was also such a good writer like Hunter... Whenever he came back, they're like, you better not do that again. <laughs> I'm not making any promises. <laughs> All right, you're hired. Like that, it was, I don't know. He, he's an interesting guy. And his skill as a fighter 
was a super valuable asset to the club as well because he could yeah. basically. I'm pretty sure I remember reading in the book that he would just basically he could just knock anyone out. That's so sick. I wish I, I wish like everyone at Donut was like, oh yeah, and also Pumphrey can fight. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, he's like really good at fighting. He has right? like 56 wins. Yeah. He's <laughs> a boxer. Well, he also he 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 got the Golden Glove title like four times as well. Like he was a legit boxer. Um, I don't know if anyone at Donut actually knows how to fight. Well, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Felipe knows like jujitsu. Definite jujitsu vibes from Felipe for sure. Yeah, yeah. I feel like he doesn't work there anymore, but I feel like Andy could fight. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I would not f- Andy. Yeah, Russo can probably scrap. Maybe I just think people from Philly are tough. <laughs> <laughs> Look, don't rip, don't rip my sweatpants. All right, <laughs> so don't f- with Russo. <laughs> I wouldn't be like I. Th- I could see. I could see Zach. I could see Job fighting. Uh, I could see Job getting in a fight. Yeah, he's from Ohio. Yeah, you know, tough guys. All they do is fight out there. Anyway, now, obviously, we want to talk about this book, um, but I don't want it to turn into a book report, which uh, some of you guys have called me out on. Um, Understandable. But I think it's important for you guys to hear some of Hunter's writing in full to get an idea of his style and the picture that he was so easily able to paint with his words. Here is the first sentence of Hell's Angels, The Strange and Terrible Saga. Joe. California, Labor Day weekend. Early, with ocean fog still in the streets. Outlaw motorcyclists wearing chains, shades, and greasy Levi's roll out from damp garages, all-night diners, and cast off one-night pads in Frisco, Hollywood, Purdue, and East Oakland heading for the Monterey Peninsula, north of Big Sur. The menace is loose again, the Hell's Angels. The hundred-carat headline, running fast and loud on the early morning freeway, loud in the saddle. Nobody smiles, jamming through traffic at 90 miles and down the center stripe, missing by inches like Genghis Khan on an iron horse. A monster steed with a fiery anus, flat out through the eye of a beer can and up your daughter's leg with no quarter asked and none given. That's f***ing awesome. This dude is so good. Show the square some class. Give them a whiff of those kicks they'll never know. Ah, these righteous dude, they love to screw it on. Yeah, that was that's one sentence. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's that's sick. Like that so cool. made me want to join a motorcycle club. <laughs> like, what am yeah, I, I doing? Think, um, Hunter's goal with this book was kind of to dispel all the attention that had been kind of and hype that had built up been built up around the Hell's Angels uh, through false media. Um, but at the same time, he also makes them sound very cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. After reviewing the Monterey case more in depth than he did in his nation piece, Hunter dives into the lives of some of the hell's angels, focusing on their employment status, perhaps unsurprising for a group known for spending most of their time on the back of a bike. Uh, but a lot of hell's angels at the time did not have a job and their only income came from unemployment, random gig work and getting support from their wives or girlfriends. They're old ladies. They're old ladies, that's right. Uh, But it wasn't uncommon for a Hells Angel to hold down a white-collar job like Bernie Jarvis did. Hunter estimated that one in ten members had a, quote, steady job or decent income. Oakland Angel Skip, a final inspector at a General Motors assembly line in Fremont. Uh, Skip made great money for Hells Angels, pulling down $200 a week as well as participating in the least expected of Hell's Angels activities, 
playing the stock market. Uh, so $200 a week back then is like $1,500 today. Mm -hmm. So this dude was making like 80 grand a year and he was a Damn. hell's angel. That was cool. Uh, Skip was not the kind of guy you'd imagine to be in the Hell's Angels, and I think that's why Hunter included him in the book. Skip flies in the face of the barbarian image that people were used to seeing, but for every Skip, there's a Tiny. Tiny <laughs> was the sergeant at arms for the Oakland chapter. The sergeant's main role was to keep the order during club meetings, which in an outlaw club means you have to be one mean son of a bitch. Like Skip, Tiny also had gainful employment, which allowed him to use the skills he picked up in the club. Tiny was a credit supervisor for an appliance chain, meaning if someone fell behind on their refrigerator payments, Tiny was going to call you up. Quote, we usually get a lot of deadbeats in this business. Usually I call them up first. I come on real business-like until I'm sure I have the right guy. Then I tell them, listen, motherfucker. I'm giving you 24 hours to get down here with that money. Now, this usually scares the shit out of them and they pay up real quick. Mm -hmm. I love when, like, big guys have tiny names. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite type of nickname. Hunter quickly learned that while some of the angels were somewhat normal people with somewhat normal jobs, it what wasn't normal was how the angels interacted with the outside world. Take the sergeant at arms, for example, Tiny. His only role wasn't to keep the peace at club gatherings, but also dictate how club members interacted with outsiders when things went sideways. Unfortunately for outsiders, if you dealt with the angels the wrong way, you were probably going to get your ass kicked or property destroyed. Hunter witnessed two good examples of this in action, and both of them happened at bars. When things go sideways, that means that like you take a trip to wine country... Yeah, yeah, and uh, the guy from George of the Jungle's there. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> I forget. Wait, Brendan Fraser's in that? No, 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 the uh, the long-haired guy. Uh, Brendan Fraser. <laughs> not Brendan Fraser. <laughs> the long-haired guy from George yeah, of the, the Jungle? Caveman. Yeah, the, the guy caveman who plays the Lyle. From Monkey Bones. <laughs> Brendan Fraser. <laughs> Bro, I watched Monkey Bone one time. <laughs> yeah. Um... I think, I, remember I, think I was a little high. I love where this is going. And it was <laughs> nuts, dude. It's a weird concept for a movie. Yeah, it is nuts. What is the concept of Monkey Bones? I don't know. I was so high, I don't even remember. Damn, Nolan. It's like, uh, I think he goes to like some weird purgatory or like hell or something. Um, it's been so long, I can't remember. But I was remember being like, whoa, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Anyway, uh <laughs> The first was a near miss in Southgate, uh, where the booze fighters were uh, founded, if you guys remember from last episode. Um, oh, I know a booze fighter. What? Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. My buddy's a booze fighter. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Is he cool? or? Is... Yeah, he's really cool. He's got kids. And he's got a. He's like a tattoo artist. He's, got a, he's a Volkswagen dude. Oh, that's tight. Yeah, oh, cool. And uh, he's got freaking shaved head, tattoos all over his face. We should reach out and see if uh, we could talk to him. Oh, for cool. sure. He'd love it. Yeah. I sent him a bunch cool. of donut merch for uh, Toys for Tots over Christmas. Oh, that's tight. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, it is nice. I'm a nice guy. Why aren't people watching my video today? <laughs> oh, no, James. It's okay. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you guys know how hard it is to make a video? <laughs> it takes hours and days. 
<laughs> All right. So at, at, there's this bar um, in Southgate. After a disagreement inside the bar, the owner told three members of the Angels and another club called the Satan's Slaves that they oh were n- cool name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that they were no longer welcome at his establishment. Uh, the bikers left and returned with enough of their comrades to block off the road with their bikes. Their goal was to tear the bar down one board at a time. A completely asymmetric response to the bar owner's request for them to leave. (laughs) Uh, This sort of overreaction was common for the Hells Angels, and an aspect of their philosophy the public found very hard to understand. Even in the most heated of arguments, there is some sort of common ground to be found, but according to the Hells Angels at the time, to disrespect an angel is to disrespect all the angels, and the only recourse was complete retribution. To quote the book, When you're asked to stay out of the bar, you don't just punch the owner. You come back with your army and tear down the place. Destroy the whole edifice and everything it stands for. No compromise. I felt like I was listening to Johnny Depp. <laughs> Does it? Is it starting to sound like Bernie Sanders a little bit? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you're asked to stay out of a bar... <laughs> You don't just punch the one percent of the one percent of bikers. <laughs> one put, yeah, yeah, the one percent, one percent of the one percent of bikers. Uh, luckily for the Southgate bar owner, the angels and Satan's slaves were only able to tear down the fence around the place before the cops <laughs> showed up. Uh, but instead of splitting, some of the angels laid down in the street and on sidewalks to block police cars from getting any closer. Uh, before any da- more damage could be done, though, the cops forced the group to leave the scene and stay out of Southgate. They told them, hey, you're not welcome in our city anymore. Um, I don't angels- know why it's not happening. I keep punching this wall. It's not falling down. Uh, I, 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 When you said, like, tear down the place, I was like, huh, I wonder if they, like, really were going to tear the place down or if that's, like, metaphorical. No, they were literally bashing it up but no they're tearing down the they building. wanted to tear it down that's they wanted awesome. to literally take it apart that is such a flex so it wasn't there anymore that's crazy <laughs> um yeah so as as some of them were leaving they some some of the angels could be heard saying that they'd be back and tear down the place for good uh i could not find if that actually happened later but uh definitely st- struck fear into the heart of the bar owner probably for the rest of his time there which is not very cool The Lynch Report holds another incident of asymmetric response at the hands of the angels, but this one is a little more complicated and a good example of Hunter parsing the truth out of a seemingly straightforward story. The report stated that a possibly intoxicated motorist was pulled from his car and beaten, as well as having his vehicle severely damaged after he accidentally knocked over a bike belonging to an angel. To the public, this might have seemed like the typical Hell's Angel overreaction, And it didn't help that the vehicle in question was an expensive E-Type Jaguar. Ruffians. Like. What? That's a nice car. Those are beautiful cars. It's a beautiful car. Looks like a wiener. (laughs) Okay. Ruffians destroying a car like that, a proxy for the status quo, was a very nerve-wracking visual. But it's only when you hear the whole story that the Lynch Report's bias becomes clear. Now, the driver in question was not a civilian, but an ex-angel named Phil. Ooh, never trust a guy named Phil. Sorry, Phil's out there if you're a good guy, but <laughs> chances are you probably aren't. Phil. Jesus. Hey, dude, what? that's that's pretty to say in front of Nolan who quoted Dr. Phil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Phil. A real doctor. I don't trust anyone named Phil. 
<laughs> I'm just saying. It, this is the hill you're going to die on, James? Yeah, man. <laughs> Phil. The driving question was not a civilian, but an ex-angel named Phil. Phil had been drinking at a roadhouse and arguing with some Oakland angels for hours who told him to leave or risk getting beaten up. He probably knew from being on the other side that he wouldn't fare well in a fight against six angels. So he left the bar and got in his jack. But he couldn't just drive off and leave things alone like some kind of little punk. He had to retaliate. So he aimed the car at the park bikes outside and mowed them down. One angel tried to move his bike but couldn't do it in time and had his leg broken when Phil ran him over. Uh, the angels chased him on. down. Yeah, dude. The angels chased him down and beat him up and didn't deny smashing the car's windows and door mirrors. And I can't say that I blame him. Dude, if someone ran over my hog, someone broke yeah. Nolan's leg. Here's a warning for all you oh. punks looking to Ooh. mess with Nolan. All right. If anyone broke Nolan's leg, I would chase them down. I would beat them up. I appreciate I'm like that, that James. guy Thank in the you. meme right now. Like, oh, I want to beat <laughs> the him. The guy up. in the meme. Mm, oh, yeah. Man. The, the guy in the yellow jacket. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Uh, spice behind the tree. Spice Adams. Oh, that guy. Spice Adams. Yeah, peeking out from behind the trees. Like, mmm, mmm. That's man. <laughs> yeah, that's mm. what Joe's like right now. Just like thinking about someone messing with our boy Nolan. If someone broke Nolan's beautiful this- leg, ooh, ooh, you watch out. Get Kanan's knife. I wonder. I wonder if the writer. I mean, did Pee Wee write uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure? I wonder if whoever wrote Pee Wee's Big Adventure took this story from the book. Because mm. that's oh, what happened maybe. to Pee Wee. Oh no! I've actually never seen that movie. <laughs> that happened to Pee Wee. <laughs> yeah, he knocked over like dominoes all these bikes outside of a biker bar, mm-hmm. and then he had to win them over by dancing to tequila on the bar in his platform heels. Oh yeah, uh, bikers love the song tequila. <laughs> so do the Ninja Turtles. And the Ninja Turtles, James, um, they are not. They nice. are real. The Ninja Turtles yeah. are real, but they. But are, are they real though? Yeah, they are real, but they are not nice. Anyway, both acts we described are, uh, I wouldn't say totally justifiable in a civil society, but are explained by the Frisco chapter motto of that time, all on one and one on all. There are th- <laughs> there were two factors that attracted people to the Hells Angels at that time that attracted different kinds of people. At first, the main selling point was the sense of community. Remember, at first, the angels down in San Bernardino were made up of random guys and writers that didn't feel at home in the club they were already in. It was a group of outcasts brought together. While other clubs like the Booze Fighters were booze-loving and hell-raising outlaws early on, just as much as the Angels, I suspect the love for the nomadic biker lifestyle was just a touch stronger in the people who eventually joined the Angels. The second selling point for the Hell's Angels was the image that the media created for biker clubs. We discussed last week how the events in Hollister, July 4th, 1947, created the image of the outlaw biker and how it was completely fabricated to sell copies of Life magazine. But by the time Hunter was hanging out with the Hells Angels in 1965, no one had really questioned it yet. Events like the sexual assault in Monterey only helped to bolster their image as a roving pack of perverted drug addict maniacs, which attracted perverted drug addict maniacs. (laughs) So, when you have a group of people united by their sense of community and a carefree attitude towards violence, it makes sense how they were able to dispense it so easily in defense of each other. Quote, 
When somebody punches a lone angel, every one of them feels threatened. They are so wrapped up in their own image they can't conceive of anybody challenging their colors without being fully prepared to take on the whole army. While reading through the strange and terrible saga, you start to get the idea that experiencing a close encounter with the Hell's Angel entirely depends on how you treat them. Like we saw, outward aggression, big and small, will usually produce aggression back. But that's not how every story ends. A brush with the angels could leave you regaining just a little dab of hope for humanity, even. A gas station owner in the appropriately named town of Angel's Camp was closing up shop one night when 30 angels stopped at his business and asked for a place to work on their hogs. The owner had no interest in sticking around, telling them, quote, the place is yours and getting the hell out of there. Upon returning, he fully expected the place to be demolished. But not only was his shop still intact, but the angels had taken the time to clean all of his tools in the shop and even sweep the floor. The man reckoned that it was cleaner than when they had got there. It's stories like that that really make me consider the philosophy behind the Hell's Angels. Were they violent to a fault? I don't think anyone would argue with that. But I think in a twisted way, they lived out the golden rule to an absurd degree. Any slight towards them is going to be returned with extreme prejudice, but decency also has a chance of being met with an over-returned amount back as well. It's true, it's true. It's like it's like a it's like a hair trigger kind of sensitivity towards any sort of reaction towards them, you know? Yeah. Like it's a it's a needle that can very easily be blown either direction. It just depends on like which way you blow on it, you know? <laughs> yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk real quick about how the Hell's Angels smelled. Their goal as an organization was to upturn any and every societal norm and put up a middle finger to the working stiffs. And there might have been no better way of doing that than upsetting people's nostrils. But surprisingly, only a few angels ever really got a very strong musk going, mostly because a lot of them had wives or girlfriends who would force them to bathe before going to bed. However, I know what that's like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah James. <laughs> yeah. That actually I, I've, happened to me the other night. <laughs> like, because we're in quarantine, I just, like, don't shower. <laughs> uh, and yeah. the other night, Casey was like, you need to bathe before you get into bed. You stink. <laughs> that's exact. That's an exact quote from the book that Hunter describes. Really? What? Yeah. <laughs> you need to bathe before you get in bed with me. <laughs> Damn, dude, I'm like an um, outlaw. <laughs> yeah. Definitely cool. outlaw vibes. I'm cool. I had no idea. I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, however, one thing the Hell's Angels weren't known for, at least at the time, was doing their laundry. Angels would often wear their dirty clothes until they gave out, as in they fell apart. But it gets even worse than that. Um, and I'm just going to warn you guys, this next part is not for the weak stomachs out there. Okay, <gasps> Just giving you a warning. Newly accepted recruits would arrive at their initiation with the official uniform. A new pair of Levi's, a new denim jacket with the sleeves cut off, and a new patch signifying their acceptance as a fully patched Hells Angels. Just real quick, there were um, there's d different levels of membership. Uh, you know, there was like an associate was like the very first step. I think it was associate, and that's just like... Some like Hell's Angel has invited you to Clubhouse just to hang out, and the guys kind of suss you out. If you get invited back, 
there's a good chance that you'll become a prospect and you have to be a prospect for a couple years. You help out around the club. You don't get a patch yet. You wear the vest and all that, but you don't get a patch. Um, you're just kind of doing grunt work a lot of the time, cleaning and serving drinks to people even. Uh, but then once, uh, once the Hells Angels unanimously uh, agree that you are fit to be in the club, that's when you get your patch. And then you go through this initiation. That's kind of how we hire interns at Donut. It is kind of, uh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway. Nolan used uh, to do my laundry. <laughs> I think I did do it once. No, you um, didn't. You never did my laundry, <laughs> liar. <laughs> you never did for me, bro. <laughs> I got your couch out of your apartment. Yeah, because you wanted most... a couch. I gave you a yeah. couch. You t- you're like, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> no, dude. You didn't want to get that couch out. I of didn't want to get apartment. it out, but you were like, I was like, do you do you want a couch? And you were like, it was a two way street. Yeah, it, was a two-way it helped street. me out, but also I gave you a couch. It was the most. <laughs> that was the most difficult moving thing I've ever had to do oh, in my man, life. Getting that it was... in there was the worst. <laughs> Anyway. I was just okay, gonna so leave when it. The, I was thinking about when honestly the getting a chainsaw and cutting it in half. Yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> um, so anyway, once the the rest of the club was happy that the recruit uh, had brought the appropriate clothes, um, they would be laid on the floor, and then it was time for the quote defiling of the new initiate's uniform. Um, hold your nose, guys. Oh boy, a bucket of humid waste would be collected and then dumped on the clothes and stomped on by the other members um, then the uniform would either be uh, dunked in motor oil or left to sit underneath their leaky harleys and collect as much oil and grease as possible so these things just smelled like shit um, so these garments were the recruits originals and were worn every day until as hunter puts it the clothes rot off his body. Um, when the garments were too weak to be worn on their own, they're worn over new ones, um, which is just so gross. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, granted, I think some of this was a little bit of an embellishment on Hunter's part. Yeah. But let's just, I, I think it's safe to say that there's no way these guys smelled oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so why did they do this? Well, it showed that the wearer is committed to the Hells Angels lifestyle and the club over everything else in their life, and also to show seniority within the group. If your clothes are dirtier than someone else's, you've probably been in the club longer. I, so you, this is too gross for me. I think this would, I I have no problem being jumped into the Hells Angels. I mean, it would hurt, but I don't want to wear like a poopy vest. Mm-mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. that's pretty bad. I'd say that like uh, wearing poop covered clothes is right up there as one of my least favorite things to do. I think the <laughs> I think the oil would probably honestly would probably overpower the doo doo. No, um, no, like yeah, oil stinks, but poop, Nolan, human I think, poop. I honestly have you ever pooped I don't know, man. outside like not in a toilet. I have. There is a reason why there's water in a toilet. That's fair. It helps with. And these guys are not taking care of their bodies. Yeah. This, this <laughs> is a beer. This is poop. like, yeah, beer poops. Yeah. Like in uh, 
uh, gas MP. station chili dog and beer poops. Oh God! <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I would be the guy. I would be the guy to like collect all that poop in the gang. That would be my job. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> Okay, so I, I, I got. I'm very organized. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I wasn't able to find any info as to whether or not they still do this. I think this was probably a very uh, '60s thing to do. Um, <laughs> it's just so gross, though. Hey, did I get your poop from you yet? No, you're still. I. <laughs> okay, don't let me forget. <laughs> can you make sure oh, that God. you poop by end of day? Because I really want to get all the poop ready so we can dump it on all these guys' clothes first thing tomorrow. Ah, oh, why did you poop without telling me? I told you. Let me know when you got to poop. I'm going to have my bucket ready. <laughs> just if you're a hell's angel out there, I just want to say personally, James Pumphrey and on uh, behalf of Donut Media, which I do have the right to speak on behalf of, we think the hell's angels are cool. We think you guys are awesome. Your uniforms are sick. Your motorcycles are cool AF. I think we are aware that you do a lot of stuff for the community. Which we'll get into. Um, and please don't hurt us or our families. <laughs> um, please don't uh, pretend to hurt us, to scare us. We think you're cool. We think you're awesome. Uh, we're just wimps, and you guys are cool. Thank you. <laughs> Because of their anti-establishment outlook on pretty much everything, the Hells Angels were darlings of the growing counterculture movement, of which the college town of Berkeley was a hot spot. Maybe not too surprisingly, but a shared love of weed and psychedelics brought the unlikely pairing of bikers and college students together. But the admiration was most likely a one-way street. Quote, Students who could barely get up the nerve to sign a petition or shoplift a candy bar were fascinated by the tales of the Hells Angels ripping up towns and taking whatever they wanted. The Hells Angels were probably not fascinated by whatever tales the students had to offer. The single-sided admiration was confirmed when the Hells Angels did something no one thought they ever would. They got political. America's involvement in Vietnam in the 1960s is extremely complicated and outside the scope of our podcast. But what you need to know for this story is that in 1965, the U.S. had been involved for almost five years, slowly increasing the amount of military equipment and soldiers in the region. In 1964, the U.S. officially entered the conflict, fully backing South Vietnam against the North, led by communist Ho Chi Minh. By October of 1965, over 100,000 U.S. troops were in Vietnam, many of them drafted personnel. Student protesters in Berkeley belonging to the Vietnam Day Committee organized a peaceful protest against America's involvement for October 16th. Over 15,000 people planned on marching from Berkeley to an army shipping depot in Oakland. But at the city limits, a force of 400 Oakland police officers were waiting for them, as well as the Hells Angels. Oh, I thought they'd be on the other side. No. Nope. He said they were going to get political. No one really knows how, but 16 angels were able to sneak past the police's blockade and confront the march head on. The bikers collided with the leading edge of the march, swinging at the protesters, snatching signs, and ripped some sound equipment off a truck leading the crowd. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, members of the Hells Angels were quoted as yelling, America first! and America for Americans as they surged through the police lines. 
Somewhere in the mix, a police officer's leg was broken as the police broke up the fighting between the peaceful protesters and the Hells Angels. It was a surprise to the students who may have even looked up to the angels, but it wasn't to anyone paying attention. The Hells Angels may have been contrarian, but they still stood for freedom. The kind of freedom defined by motorcycle travel and drinking beers with your friends. And there probably wasn't any room within that philosophy for anything that could have been perceived as sympathy for communists, like an anti-war protest against war with communists. And so the fragile alliance between the angels and the lefty counterculture was forever shattered. So also, I just wanted to add, like, after that protest, there was they um, the leader of the Vietnam Day Committee tried to uh, reconcile with the Hells Angels and bring them into the fold. Because, I mean, like we said, it makes sense that they would not be for anti-war protests. So they're they're coming from a place of like supporting America. Right. America's at the at war. I feel like they they still have the same kind of ideology as close to the same ideology as the hippies in Berkeley. Um, but you're like, you were saying like, as soon as you go against them a little bit, they come full force against you. And, you know, they break all ties with them just because, you know, there's this slight against them. <sighs> kind of depressing. Anyway. Yeah. What we've talked about so far barely scratches the surface of Hunter S. Thompson's book. Um, I highly recommend that you guys check it out. I really can't wait to read more of his stuff. But to look at, into the impact of the book, we kind of have to ruin the ending. The book concludes with an experience I can only imagine uh, severely tainted Hunter's view of the Angels. After witnessing and analyzing the violence the club was capable of, he experiences it firsthand, getting beat up by a group of Angels he didn't know and ultimately saved by an angel we met before, uh, Tiny from Oakland, the credit supervisor. The attack ends as soon as it begins. Tiny rushes Hunter to the road, gets in his car, and leaves. Uh, and that was kind of the end of Hunter's time with the Hells Angels. Hells Angels, the strange and terrible saga of the outlaw motorcycle gangs, was published in 1967 to wide acclaim, selling tons of copies. It was a massive title that brought Hunter into the mainstream. As a result, Hunter did a lot of press, which is how he found himself on the set of a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation show to promote the book. But the producers had a little surprise in store for Hunter. One Skip Workman. <laughs> That's a hilarious name now that I say it. Yeah. Skip Workman. Uh, one Did he have a Work job? <laughs> <laughs> Skip Workman of the Oakland Hells Angels. Uh, let's listen to the, some clips, huh? The bike rider is Cliff Workman, treasurer of the Hells Angels, the wildest bunch of outlaws to come out of the West and Philly the Kid and the Dolphins. He's here to challenge his biographer, a tense young literary journalist named Hunter Thompson. It was Thompson who lived, drank, and rode with the Hells Angels and wrote about them in a bestseller. He was the first to compare them to the outlaws of the West. The critics have been unanimous in their praise of his book. But the Hells Angels haven't been heard from yet. Tonight, Sunday makes author meet critics. It brings together the writer Hunter Thompson and the reader antagonize the most. That's the bike rider, Hells Angel. Seth Workman. Okay, so it's the, the CBC broadcast. Uh, Skip Workman rides in on the set on his Harley and circles around mm -hmm. the host and Hunter a few times. Since the media 
was arguably treated more harshly in Hunter's book than the Hell's Angels, I think the producers of the show wanted to teach Hunter a lesson. And I don't think they told Hunter what was about to happen, which I think is evident in Hunter's body language. He looks extremely uncomfortable and caught off guard. Uh, anyway, let's continue. What did you think of the book? Well, I'll tell you, Al, and, and Hunter, everybody in this room, that that book is 60% cheap trash. Oh. You see, actually, there are none of us that care what anybody thinks. Because we are us. I am me. What I do in my home is nobody's business. I don't give a damn. If they don't like me on my motorcycle, it's too bad. Obviously, Hunter caught off guard. Mm -hmm. Hurt, hurt his, uh, I think Skip hurt his feelings as well. His comments about the trash book. And Skip's assertion that the club doesn't care about what people think of him and what he doesn't, he doesn't care what people think. He clearly cares enough to make the trip yeah. to Canada mm -hmm. and ride his bike onto the stage of a TV set, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's just such a contradiction, you know? And it's it the, the moment that is, I think, where the interview becomes truly absurd is when Skip says that the real reason he's mad at Hunter is not because of what he wrote about in the book, but that Hunter never paid the off. club in beer. All right, good for it. All right, I want to know why we didn't get the two kegs of beer that you promised us. Well, this guy here, he's sitting here, he's making a million dollars, and he made it off of us. Uh, maybe Bill, not quite Bill, that much. Bill. But if you knew what I was thinking on this, uh, you're making something. You anyway. wouldn't tell me that. Bike. I mean, I'm kind of. That's the only part I kind of agree with Skip on. Was like, you told these guys. These guys love beer. <laughs> you know, a lot of them don't have good jobs. And you told them, hey, I'll buy you two kegs of beer. That's a lot of beer. That's a lot of beer. That's like 500 beers, right? <laughs> like, the, the, that's when the crowd starts laughing and kind of gets on onto Skip's side. Which I thought, you know, when I first saw the interview, I, like, was really pissed at the crowd because it's just, like, so obviously, like, Skip trying to be funny. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah. There had been so much tension built up for like three minutes, and then that was like—I mean, it's an absurd thing to say. Mm -hmm. Well, I also um, think like they're laughing at at him, not with him. Oh yeah, you know, like yeah. when he says "Junkie George," they're like, "Oh, like," and you, you know, this is a pre-internet. You know, there are pro there are three TV channels. You know, like people weren't as aware of other cultures at the time, so to see this thing that was so foreign to them and he's sort of like playing right into it you know like yeah. ju junkie george and then and then you find out magilla was in the back of your car and they're like uh, magilla junkie george yeah. you know like they were they were like what a spectacle I, I didn't even know they made him like this kind of thing and they can't be such bad guys they got fun names yeah and like <laughs> but like when 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 skip first brings up junkie george uh -huh. Like, even Hunter, you can see on Hunter's face, Hunter is even like, holy shit, yeah. dude. Like, I get now why people are laughing, because that's absurd, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, it's just so crazy. And then, yeah, then George, or uh, Skip says, you know, that you gotta you gotta beat a woman to keep him in line. And then, like, the, the crowd just gets even crazier. Well, like, I don't like what you're doing. Why did they thump him? 
All right, this man here, you got into a man's personal argument. That's the not right line. No, no, I it ain't. That's the this is my side of what happened. Okay, you weren't there, so why don't you preface it with that? This is what, this is what happened. Okay. And you, and you see if this isn't right. Junkie George was beating his old lady. Junkie George? <laughs> hey, we're, they step we're in the 60s, and this, yeah. we're, we're still shit. Yeah, you know? it is true. <laughs> Man, sometimes you gotta hit a woman. Yeah. It, <laughs> and then Hunter catches Skip in the lie, you know, that like, oh, if someone was beating up their wife, they'd stop it because just two minutes before, uh -huh. um, Skip was saying that that's what was going down, and that's why Hunter got beat up because he intervened. Well, this is what happened. Oh, I'm serious. <laughs> Chucky George is beating his old lady. I can, well, listen to this. Chucky George's dog bit him, right? To me, this is a personal fan. This is a I didn't personal feud. If a guy wants to beat his wife and his dog bites him, that's between the three of them, right? <laughs> Here came the peacemaker, right? He doesn't have a patch on. He isn't in the club, you know? And Chucky George is stiff. You walked, you walked right up to him and you said, only a punk beats his wife and dog. <laughs> These were your words. Now, you said it. You said it to this man, and you backed up. You finished And he said, Hunter, you want, you want some of this. And you said no, but you got it anyway. And when he hit you, three or four others of them hit you, too. Are you finished? I was talking to Fripp. It was about 3 in the morning, and I was watching, what's his name, what, Junkie George? I don't know who, I didn't know the guy. But there was somebody about 30 feet to my left beating his wife to a pulp on the rock. I thought, well, that's, you know, kind of ugly, but that's the way the, that's where the game is played. Now, if he'd been beating her that bad, somebody would have stopped him. Oh, no, don't, don't. Uh, Remember you're you're kidding me, time. and you're going to kid everybody else. No, nobody stopped him, and you know he beat his wife up. You just said it, right? He was beating his wife up. Okay. He was laying on the ground with a big rock or something, you know. No, no, oh, no. She was lying on the rock, and no, he, was, he was giving her this, you know. To keep a woman in line, you got to beat him like a rug once in a while, you know? Well, <laughs> I hate this part. Yeah, when he says, I, when he says... Yeah, to keep a, your wife in line, you got to beat her like a rug every once in a while, and then it just like cuts to those two nerds like... <laughs> yeah, it's so disgusting. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. It, and then Hunter, um, you know... I was saying that catches... as them, not as me. I don't think you ever should hit a woman or anyone. And then my my least favorite Dude, part of the, the interview Hells is... Angels when... outside of your house, Nolan? Yeah, yeah. what's going on? That... <laughs> There's a run. A run happens every week outside my house. Um, <laughs> so my least favorite part, though, is the host's reaction, who doesn't even let Hunter tell his side of the story, yeah. oh, and then just know. ends there the interview. Uh, it's Hunter, the, we're done. Yeah. Um, the host is probably my least favorite person in this whole Dude, yeah. interaction. The host and just like the nerdy nerds in the audience. Like I just, <laughs> I hate just like weak white people who well this is that status quo that we're talking they're about they're like too too weak to like actually start any with yeah. people but as soon as like a bigger person starts they're like the first yeah. to jump behind yeah them. just like yeah. fucking mayonnaise yeah. ass white yeah. people like yeah. gross <laughs> like freaking um uh what's that guy from like from star wars the <laughs> Yeah. Oh, guy. salacious B. Crumb. Salacious Crumb, dude. Yeah. yeah. Don't be a salacious crumb. Yeah, piece of <laughs> shit. <laughs> Yo, f salacious crumb, Salacious man. crumb, dude. Well, <laughs> f you. <laughs> you got eaten. <laughs> but 
Okay, so like that's but like you know through this whole episode we're kind of, kind of talking about those wanting to uphold the status quo is like that's that's the per those are the people yeah. you know those are the people that are afraid of anything any meaningful change. This seems like something Geraldo Rivera would do. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, and this is kind of like the side of like like we I mean we're in media and this is the kind of thing that I hate about it is that like even though the CBC wasn't part of that initial riling up of the hell's angels and other outlaw clubs like they felt like an obligation to kind of protect the media class and bring hunter down a notch with this interview um i think i don't think it i think it was more just like what's the most press we can get out of this i don't know if they were really it didn't seem like such an attack on hunter like the host for sure is just kind of like needling at him but it I, I think, think it's just just for their own ratings. Like it, they they couldn't care less. It's just for ratings. Yeah, All right, I might have been thinking a little more conspiratorially than I think, uh, but that's a good point, Joe. That's I think that's absolutely valid as well. And I, you know, you bet. Like I bet that the host is like thinking, like, yeah, man, like I'm gonna be remembered for this. I can't even find who the what the host name was. I couldn't even <laughs> find what the name of the show was. It's also like, like nothing freaking happened. Like this, like nothing happened. Like it's, it's not. Nothing was resolved. Yeah. Nothing like, uh, like substantial got brought up. Yeah. Hey, I mean that's ex- but that's exact. That's the same thing with the with the initial reaction to the forty seven Hollister incident. You know, they just built it up to be this big thing yeah. that wasn't even true. Like I'd be willing to bet that like after that stunt or whatever, uh, Hunter S. Thompson and Skip Workman went out and had a beer and smoked a joint together. You know, it's like, hey, yeah. man, we're in Canada together. Might as well hang out. I don't want to hang out with all these mayonnaise asses. I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wasn't able to find any info confirming that, but like, you I bet, know. I bet they had a good old time. They probably did. Yeah, Hunter was probably like, well, that was pretty weird. Huh? <laughs> hey, that was pretty weird that that guy uh, had you on here, didn't he? Yeah, man, he didn't even let you talk. Yeah, he didn't even let me talk. Yeah, I think I think Hunter was like, is still one of the only people who like really empathized and understood the the hell's angels despite the fact that they beat him up and that skip workman went on tv to attack him a little bit or just grill him he didn't really attack him super hard but you know grilled him a little bit hey man um just because someone beats you up doesn't mean that you still can't be friends try not to beat myself up you know trying to be friends you. with myself yeah, try to be friends with yourself anyway but i think this this last passage that we'll read read today uh really illustrates hunter's understanding and what really what what the mindset of the Hells Angels was at that time. So there is more to their stance than a wishful yearning for acceptance in a world they never made. The real motivation is an instinctive certainty as to what the score really is. They're out of the ball game and they know it. Unlike the campus rebels who, with a minimum amount of effort, will emerge from their struggle with a validated ticket to status, the outlaw motorcyclist views the future with no upward mobility at all. In a world increasingly geared to specialists, technicians, and fantastically complicated machinery, the Hells Angels are obvious losers, and it bugs them. But instead of submitting quietly to their collective fate, they have made it the basis of a full-time social vendetta. They don't expect to win anything, but on the other hand, they have nothing to lose. Yeah, man. I, I think that's such a great piece of writing, and that's in the first quarter of the book. Yeah. Like I said, like we barely scratched the surface of this thing, but I, I mean... that. He he nailed it, man. He nailed it, and it yeah. yeah it's proof that hippies are like uh, yeah. He's calling out hippies for being bullshit rich kids. 
You know who has the ability to just like talk about free love and do drugs all day? Rich kids. Yeah. Hey, you should really like take a year off and travel. Yeah. You oh, ever man. had someone tell you that shit? Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> I feel lucky that I really had like I went to I went to CSUN, you know, which is a very working class school, so I didn't really hear that too often. But uh yeah. If someone told me to do that, I'd be like, who with what time? Yeah. With what time would you do that with? Yeah. So on our next episode, we're going to see what is next for the Hells Angels and their growing fame. We'll see how they capitalized on it and otherwise became the largest club in the world. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, it's going to be pretty interesting. Some even crazier stuff uh, goes down. If you're a fan of Rolling Stones, you probably know what's coming. Um, if you haven't yet, I, I really strong you, I really strongly advise you to check out this book. Uh, we are not it, sponsored by it. <laughs> <laughs> when you but, first mentioned Monterey, uh, at the top, I was like, Oh, did we talk about this already? I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, I mean, it's history, so you can't spoil it, but, um, yeah, it's kind of a messed up thing that they did. Super messed up. It's, it's, um, yeah, just check it out. Uh, read more, you know, that's what I say. Read more. I haven't read a book in months, and then I read a book in two days, and it felt good. Cool. <laughs> Hell yeah. So, all right. So, yeah, that's been part three. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Come back next week for part four. Uh, to find, we also have a YouTube channel that, if you're listening to this, you probably know about. It's Donut Media, um, and go follow our podcast network on YouTube as well, so you can watch our beautiful faces. That's, uh, yeah, it's Donut Podcasts. Donut Podcasts. Um, yeah, follow Nolan across social media, at Nolan J. Sykes. Go ahead and give him a follow on Twitter, you know? Yeah. Follow me on Twitter, be- uh, at James Fumphrey. Follow, no- follow Joe, at Joe G. Mm-hmm. Weber. Joe G. Weber. Joe G. Weber. Yeah, Joe does uh, weekly cook-alongs on his uh, Instagram every Friday, and they're fun to watch. Okay. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening. This was pretty fun. And I'm going to go read some more Hunter S. Thompson. All right. I love you. Be kind. See you next time. Fire it up. (laughs) Nice.